out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of Andy Sexgang. That's not really his name, but he's um, the lead singer and um, the main man of the band that's normally referred to as the Sex Gang children who've been going since the very early 80s. Anyway, this is the interview um, from a couple of years ago, so um, do enjoy. Um, So after several minutes of casual chat, we got down to that very exciting subject. That was the early formative years. I know, such a classic start, such a cliche. Anyway, look, this is it. Andy, tell us more, tell us everything now. Um, as a small child, uh, I used to listen to, I discovered music through my mum's record collection, Edith Piaf, Johnny Cash, Roy Orbison, George Mustaki, um, stuff like that. And older brothers, uh, uh, one of them was a suede head, so, you know, I listened to a lot of stuff on the Trojan Stax labels, which I loved. Um, but, you know, I suppose my own discovery was uh, just odd records I heard on the radio. Um, the King's Lola was one of the first to stand out to me. I, just, I loved the vibration and feel of, of their music, of the song itself. Um, but uh, my, my first hero, per se, uh, musical hero, was um, Mark Boland, T-Rex. When I heard that on the radio, that just, I don't know, something inside me just started burning. Yes. Oh. So this was the early 70s. Was this the kind of bit where he'd sort of got himself into chart success, not the John Peel Perfume Garden period of poetry? No, this is after. The first thing I heard was um, <clears throat> Ride a White Swan on the radio. Oh, God, that's an amazing song. <laughs> Actually, I was, <laughs> I, was uh, I was about nine or ten. I was, um, my mum and my older brother were arguing. She, she was Greek, so, you know, Athenian. And they love to discourse and argue. Um, so having a, and we're half Irish, so there's a mixture for you. So they were having this um, argument over something, not a serious argument, just a, um, a difference of uh, historical facts or something. And um, I was trying to keep the peace. I said, oh, come on, come on, okay, tone it down, etc." And then all of a sudden this record just came on, the next record. Right away, swan. I didn't know what the hell it was, and I was just listening to it. And I went, "Shush, shush, quiet." And then they were still arguing, and I just screamed, "Shut up!" <laughs> and they just both looked at me. They stopped arguing. My hands both on each of them. And went, "Listen," I said, "Just listen, listen." And I, that was it. That was it for me. I was smitten. Yes, well, absolutely. There was just something about it, and I just thought, "This is different," you know. Yes. And also, because it was the early 70s, I suppose like you, um, I was often at home with my mum during my childhood, which was probably the late 60s. So there was lots of radio too and listened to Jimmy Young in the afternoon with What's the Recipe Today? So I had that kind of that sort of soft pop world that we sort of um, kind of didn't like at the time. But now I quite like the Carpenters and Burt Backrack and stuff like that. But then there was kind of the glam period with, you know, the, you know, the bands like Sweet and... Uh, Slade and Gary Glitter but luckily for me it was David Bowie's Space Oddity that was my first single and first album was Changes One so but it was kind of seeing David Bowie was probably the same as your Mark Boland moment well you know 
Bowie definitely did it for me afterwards, um, and Roxy Music. Um, and then, of course, uh, uh, after Transformer was released, which a lot of people, Lou Reed's album, uh, produced by David Bowie and Mick Ronson, uh, a lot of people who were into T-Rex and Bowie, of course, then, who weren't privy to Lou Reed's music, or Velvet Underground, discovered that whole new ball game, you know, of uh, stateside, you know, underground music yeah. from the late 60s, you know, Velvet Underground. And, you know, it was a rich, rich time. It was a, you know, this is a, a rich university of music, you know. It's like, well, uh, I'm, I'm not one for studying music per se, uh, in an academic sense, you know, uh, just doesn't really do it for me. Um, it's all about feel. It's all about methodicalism or, uh, anyway, it's, it's, uh, and you know, the best university music is, uh, is music itself, you know? Yes. Well, Listen, absolutely. Discover, discover what you like, what, what feels good, you know? Yes. So, because I had an older brother who was seven years older during the 70s, and he was he introduced me to the world of prog rock and then a bit of heavy metal and all that those cliches. But punk came along and he definitely didn't go for punk. And then, you know, I was a bit too young for punk. But when the 80s appeared, I started to sort of get that, you know, kind of interest myself. And it was kind of listening to John Peel probably in the early 80s, which is one of the many typical kind of cliches. So when did you find your kind of musical world and your voice when did you sort of think actually I, i've got a voice here um well it was pretty late really but um i did have a i mean i always loved music but i mean my main expression was painting since i was a uh, well since i was a real toddler uh and uh, but i mean serious painting you know um i i actually had an exhibition when i was about four years old four and a half um it was uh, it was it was an official exhibition, but I was the only child artist in there. The other artists were um, all adults. But um, but music, um, I did, you know, I wrote a song when I was five because I was asked to, just as a, you know, was playing around with all the brothers and actually just wrote a song on the spot. Um, and I thought, yeah, I, I like that, you know, I like that sense of creativity as well. But again, painting was my main thing, and I started to lose that expression as um as a valid expression from the age of sort of 10 onwards, really. Um, I suppose it had something to do with, uh, you know, rising up to the hypocrisy of governments and, uh, and religious orders, you know, yeah. uh, organized churches. And uh, I just couldn't stand that hypocrisy. So I kind of went on a, um, I went on a downward bender, you know, <laughs> and I, then music for me started to become something that was more, of an aggressive form of um, a more valid, more biting form of expression. So, you know, yes. it just sort of started there. But again, I, you know, I didn't actually, you know, I had a guitar to play around a bit and stuff like that, just myself. But, um, but then I got involved in, um, well, in street politics. So, you know, in my late teens. So, uh, again, you know, it wasn't until a couple of years after that that I, now is a good time to start the music, you know. Yes, and that so, whole thing came to a crunch. So during the that period, the early eighties, you know, there was the kind of because Thatcher had been sort of elected in seventy nine, and then, you know, the there was a, a bit of post punk world, and then you know there was the kind of, um, I suppose, the sort of a few things splintered. There was the sort of, I suppose, the slightly as we refer to it as the goth scene had appeared, and then sort of eighty two, eighty three was that kind of the world that was going to be the kind of the Smiths 
and that kind of scene as well. Because a lot of your music has a certain cabaret quality to it. I remember a few years ago seeing, was it um, Barry Humphreys doing the music of the Weimar Republic, which was, you know, with Meow Meow. So, you know, some of your kind of expression and, and sort of um, creative vibe has has a sort of a, yeah, has that kind of element in it. Is that true to say, or have I just made that up? Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, since a kid, I, I loved, um, I loved all black and white films. I, I, I especially, um, I, I love the use of, you know, early expressionist films. I just love the use of shadows and, you know, I didn't actually start to see those particular films until around 1980 or something, you know, but I had seen odd ones growing up as a child, late night in BBC two, or, you know, um, and I always been a bit of a had a great interest in history and a bit of a history buff, um, and I I found that period, Weimar Republic period, uh, well First World War through until the Second World War, I found it just an interesting period of world history and especially European history, um, and I thought the Germans uh, filmmakers uh, and the music of Kurt Violet, sort of real politic, you, you know, uh, c coming out through art forms. I thought that was valid. That was important. I liked that. I liked where that was going. It meant something, you know. It was beyond politic, actually. It was, it was not about politics per se, um, who you vote for. It was about the politics of people and how that manifests from the bottom up to government, you know, from street level to government. Yes. And that reflected... The lifestyle of the time, you know, absolutely. The continuous street battles that were going on, um, you know, and we kind of had a bit of that in um, the late seventies, in which I was involved. So yeah, absolutely, because because um, a lot of people I've interviewed during that time, there was at that because I can remember, you know, you sort of there wasn't that many opportunities for a working class kid. So obviously, being un going to sort of the world of unemployment wasn't really uh, there wasn't much of a stigma at those times. It was almost like that's something that you did for a year or two until something else kind of cropped up because not everyone went to university or even college back then. So a few people did that job seekers allowance, enterprise allowance scheme. You know, they were giving themselves, not probably realised it at the time, but now looking back, you know, a couple of years to sort of be creative people and then sort of form bands. And then, you know, that great moment that a lot of people had who I was following, you know, had the John Peel session, which gave them a certain validation, plus also an ability to sort of get heard to a wider audience. What was your kind of those early years of being in your sort of outfit? Uh, early news of, of what? Of... Yeah, so how did your, you know, the band sort of get you know, were formed, you know, because I, I was... Oh. <laughs> yeah, so I well, a bit of a long way to say it, really. You know, I I came to the end of one part of my life uh, in that sort of militant politics thing um, episode, and uh, I decided, well, you know, when that whole thing fell apart, I thought, okay, um, that's kind of a long story, but uh, I... As I said, I decided, well, you know, now's the time to get back into music seriously, you know, to, just as an appreciator. But to actually do it, it was a, it was an expression that I'd been wanting to do. Um, it had just been put on hold in my teen years. So um, it was part of everything. I, I just 
soon as I could, as soon as I learned three chords, I started translating the ideas that were in my head. And, um, and so that was developing. I was looking for people, um, auditioning people. Uh, I was going around seeing every band there was, and I learned from that again. This became my university of, uh, of music. I learned, most importantly, what not to do. Um, but also, when I, I saw a lot of bands, and I just thought, you know, the whole being was just, in my mind's eye, just obsolete, you know. It was almost like we had regressed as if punk had never happened, as if you know, glam rock as a revolution movement had never happened. And, um, and I just thought, this has got to stop, you know. And uh, I also saw the rise of the alternative scene of a, the indie, indie charts dominated by Oi Punk, which um, I thought, that's got to go. I thought that was an abomination of um, the real punk ethos. And um, it was like a tabloid version of punk. It played right into the tabloid's hands, that whole movement. And I did not like it. So, um, yeah, I I decided, you know, I'm going to put something together that will help to change all this. Yeah. That's something I just felt I driven and in burnt deep in my heart to do this. So I auditioned people. I just kept auditioning people. I, I kept uh, getting gigs whenever I could. And uh, and at the same time, I knew the music was developing. My song was developing. And I, um, I didn't sit and wait for a perfect band, a perfect set of songs. No such thing exists. It was all about snapshots of the time. And you learn as you go along. You get to point B because you've arrived at point A. You get to point C because you, from point A, you went to point B. Uh, you don't think, right, I want to get to point Z. Um, but I'm at point A and, you know, just be, before, I'm, I'm just going to wait till it, it feels right to go to point Z. It doesn't work like that. You develop. It's yeah. evolution. And, uh, you know, in your own in your own whole your whole being, you know, your whole attitude, your whole learning process. It's evolution. So um yeah, within about nine, ten months I had uh found what I thought was a a good lineup, the right lineup for the time. And um and that was it. Yeah. Because um just it was later of, we released our first single. You got the first single. Um but just you know you're you know, because I was kind of curious when you were talking about your street politics, because in the eighties I suppose there was a lot of getting involved with the yeah, I suppose the SWP and the anarchist movement and then there was the anti poll tax <laughs> movement. I mean, did you I mean what was the kind of the, the general political scene that you had been involved with in the late 90s because i know there was a lot of kind of late 70s no no oh yeah late oh, sorry yes yeah, no, late 70s and the swp the socialist wankers party um <laughs> <laughs> i was actually a member of them um <laughs> <clears throat> yeah but i i kind of never liked that uh <clears throat> the left their own worst enemies the leadership of the left and um you know i was involved in the group that uh we were all squatting in Battersea and you know, we we did things on, on street level, on ground level, for example, um, just within our own neighborhood and community, um, helping people, uh, battered wives, uh, getting rid of heroin dealers, um, fighting the local NF, fighting the police. We were, you know, there, there was just, there was a lot of corruption. There was a lot of illegal stuff going on, especially the police. Uh, the local police station, Batsy Bridge Police Station, had one of 
the worst rates of um, deaths when prisoners were incarcerated in the holding cells. Uh, had one of the worst ones in the country. Um, they were absolute thugs, and uh, and they were we treated them with the contempt they deserved. And um, but anyway, so we we felt we were making a difference in that local community. Outside of that, we got involved in everything else, all the anti-Nazi demonstrations of the late seventies, Castle, Lewisham, Leicester. Yeah. Uh, Question what else? Um, had you uh, had you sort of become part? Or were you curious on the fest of the the festival front? You know, going you know like the Stonehenge and Windsor Free Festival and and that kind of movement as well. Or were of, you... of, of the what movement? Sorry. You yeah. know, I suppose festivals. There was been the Windsor oh. Free Festival and Stonehenge and and those kind of the tram. No, 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 no. Um, I went to a free thing Battersea Park one time to see the Stranglers. Uh, we lived in Battersea, so um, the Clash in uh, Victoria Park. Uh, uh, I think it was 79, whatever. No, um, not really. Went to, um, you know, just, just went to uh, to concerts. Uh, it, not, 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 the, not the sort of Stonehenge festivals and stuff like that, no. That was never really my thing. Yes. Yeah. So when... It seems a nice place, but, you know. Yes, it has a long way to go. But um, so when you got the album, your first album, the uh, song... Song and Legend, produced by yep. Tony James. How did you sort of come across Tony? Um, Tony saw the band advertised playing somewhere, which was uh, we were finding it incredibly difficult to get gigs um, with the music and the name, we were, and we were told no way. So um, anyway, uh, he he saw the name and the paper, and uh, he asked. He was playing with Johnny Thunders at the time, and he asked. Um, the promoter, we said, get that band on the support, you know. And um, and then he met us, and uh, he wanted to produce us, so, you know. The rest is history. And then, I I mean, I was, you know, a bit, of, a bit off-hand at first, but um, then I, I kept pumping into the guy, you know. Um, and one time, down in King's Road, he just pumped into him, and he said, look, he said, he said, I don't live far. He said, let's, um, he said, when do you come back have a cup of tea? And talk, we listen to some music and you know and I was like, this this guy, I've been I've been so off hand with him, but he was such a nice guy, you know, he's a really nice guy and uh and you know, something about him felt really true and I was like, Yeah, okay, you know. Uh give the guy a chance, you know, to uh you know, get to know him. And um it's great. I thought he was a perfect producer, um for that album and for the band at that time. Yes, absolutely. The man's, you know, a genie of wild ideas, you know, really good. Yes, because um, one thing I that sort of hadn't sort of realised at the time, but there were sort of there were just a few gatekeepers, you know, like now everything's kind of just out there. But at the t then you you know radio was much more sort of small and um, specialised, and you had to sort of get into one of those kind of station or programmes and the music papers as well. You know, there was the the <laughs> NME, the this you know Melody Maker Sounds Record the NME. The enemy, which you probably the enemy, exactly the enemy. <laughs> but John Peel gave you a session, didn't he? Which must uh, yeah, I, <laughs> I think he grit his teeth, but you know, he, I think he felt he had to because uh, the band were getting, you know, uh, starting to get a reputation, and it's like, well, you know, but uh, he was nice, you know, he seemed a nice bloke. Yes, but I realised that 
get it, you know, those there was only those few places that you can get sort of almost noticed at the time. And if you got them, you you know, like certain bands, you know, you were made or certainly given a little bit of a leg up. And if you didn't, you were always going to be struggling. So obviously, you know, getting that slight validation from someone like that must have felt quite a, a like you were on the right track. Um, yeah, but it just, you know, without sounding conceited, which I, I don't think I am actually. I hope not. Anyway, no, I'm not actually. Um, no, it it just felt like it was just part of the plan that was coming together. Yes. You know, it was. Um, you know, I knew the intention was pure and true. Our cause, our motivation, and uh, so you know, to be poetical about it, it was like in the hands of the gods. You know, I am half Greek, so you know, love ancient Greek mythology, but so. Um, you know, use that as a quote, but uh, yeah, it was, um, we just tried every avenue, you know, and we accepted every possibility. It was, it was, a, it, was um, it was a good thing, you know, yeah. and getting the pill session, of course, was, was a great thing. And, you know, it's, it was an important thing for us. It's for all people, it's for all bands. Yeah, absolutely. Because um, cause a lot of bands, they have that five-year narrative, you know, where they get together for about 12 months, 18 months, they make a single, get a bit of play, then the first album, then tricky second album, and then things are a bit more hard to keep going. So with with um, this this lineup, you, you actually had slightly less than the five-year narrative, didn't you? Totally. So what sort of what what was the kind of vibe what, what once the album was finished because you must have been pleased with it because it still sounds amazing today. Um, the album was, you know, the songs were the songs, and uh, you know we worked meticulously and very hard on making sure that we interpreted those ideas as they should be to the best of our ability. Um, and, you know, it, it, it's like trying to decipher a language that, you know, uh, and without any real experience, just, just, uh, the experience of, um, your emotional feel of music since you first heard a song you liked on the radio or on a record player or whatever, um, just that to guide you and, uh, you, you know, your gut instincts and your feeling doing it for the right reason, not trying to make something, uh, to fit in or to whatever, but just following the music. It all begins and ends with the music. So, um, you know, as I said, Tony James is like a, was a great guiding force for that. He really was, you know. I think he was, as I said, the perfect producer for that album. It was recorded in a fast and furious way, which kept a raw energy, which was good. Um, and, you know, it was... Uh, Unfortunately, the lineup, uh, with the exception of Rob Stroud, uh, who was the first to join the band, the drummer, um, he was always the most loyal to the cause. Uh, and he, he was always, you know, the greatest team player out of the other two guys. But um, so, you know, personal problems, uh, things deteriorated after that first album. Yes, I know. So he had a lot of other problems too, managerial, etc. Um, managerial, I, you know, using the um, inverted commas, managerial. Uh, but you know, just bad choices, letting bad people get involved because we just we had no protection. Yeah, we had no idea of you know 
that people could be scurrilous and devious or, you know, or inept at best. Yes, I know. I mean, you know, I, I must admit, I sort of... It's not, it's not something unique to any one band. I think, you know, everyone, everyone has suffered from that at one point or another. I know. Which is an unfortunate thing. It's a noble, it's a noble industry and uh, it should be... <laughs> <laughs> it's full of, it's full of you know very immoral people. I know. There's that classic quote from Hunter S. Thompson, isn't there, about sort of sharks and low life types, you know, being part of that industry. And um, yes, the, uh, it's a murky, it's a murky world. So did you? I mean, because you then renamed rename the band in sort of about two, well, a year, two years later. Did you sort of feel like you, you know, that was kind of an essential thing to sort of put to put that sort of marker down renamed the band oh i thought you know in 84 the band was renamed andy's sex gang and the quick gang oh no 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 it was uh no that was um that was what i was known as uh within the band uh the second studio album called blind um that was supposed to come out that was uh, that was the second sex gang children album um about 10 days, 14 days before the release of that album, um, I was notified by the head of the label, Illuminated Records, that um, it was going to be released as an Andy Second album. And he explained why. Uh, I since found out it was a politics as well of uh, one of the members involved uh, who, who was launching his solo career with that label. Uh, they and uh, they didn't want it coming out as a Sex Gun Children album. Right. That one was pulled out from under my feet. The guy took me to an expensive restaurant to tell me this. Um, probably thinking that uh, in a public place I, I wouldn't react as I normally would have um, with such news, but anyway, no, that that was uh, that was something that was completely out of my control, and I said no fucking way, and he just said, look, he said it's too late, the album's already pressed up. Blimey, it's. It... I was gutted. Yes, so so I mean, you must have well gutted and flawed. I mean, then what what did you actually do with yourself in that sort of meantime of just kind of twiddling your thumbs? No, we. Went out and toured that album. Wow. It's... If we're not playing gigs, I, I don't sit at home and twiddle my thumbs. I'm completely, you know, I've got, uh, I, I've always got a head full of music. So that allows me an opportunity to get those ideas down to complete songs and, you know. Yes. Bloody hell. God, that's, um, yes, I know. Everyone has sort of a bit of a um, a story, but yours yours is quite kind of even more complex than the norm, isn't it? I wouldn't know. It's just my story. Everyone it is just a story. story. So as, as the 80s were sort of progressing and, and there would be, you know, the rise of the independent charts, did you feel at the time, because you must have been seeing all these other bands who suddenly became you know, on the front of the papers getting kind of big record sales. Did you did you sort of feel frustrated that you you weren't sort of also part of that, you know, that kind of I suppose I was gonna say industry, but sort of the scene that was kind of happening in the alternative world? Um we were in our own world. I mean every band's in their own world. Uh 
I wouldn't say there was, uh, well, there was a scene, um, one where quite a lot of bands were being incredibly creative and opening the floodgates, you know, for bands to go out there and do what they want, not at the beck and call of uh, major or independent labels. Uh, it was all about freedom of expression. And your responsibility was to use that freedom of expression with your own sense of responsibility to the music. That's what it was about. That's how I saw it. It all begins and ends with the music. Yeah. I didn't really follow the pressing too much. It didn't really interest me. Yes, well, absolutely. And with, with once, because you, you had a great cover to Blind, didn't you? Uh, the Elvis yeah. shooting Elvis, yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I put that together from various different uh, pop art, uh, um, <laughs> pop art, you know, and uh, I put that together in, uh, where was it? Uh, yeah, the idea for it up in um, the reading room in Brixton Library, which I, I live just across the road from. It was the only place I could go and uh, write lyrics and do stuff like that uh, without the buzzer going or the phone going, you know. Yes. Uh, so, yeah. There you go. The creative moment. So as the 80s progressed, your your next album was Arco Valley, wasn't it? Yeah. And what was the lineup on that band? What what who were you with then? Uh Cam Campbell was on bass. Uh he had been in uh, he'd been on the Blind album in uh, in Saskatchewan. Uh Nigel Preston came on board for drums. A guy called Piero Belligi, uh from a band called Neon in Italy at the time. But we had worked together on a, a different project previous to Arco Valley. Um, and, yeah, he came on board for piano and keyboards. Uh, yeah, and myself, of course. Yes. And were you sort of, I mean, influence-wise, because things had changed so much in the kind of that, that decade, but you were sort of also had been fascinated with the world of cabaret. What, where were you drawing your influences from at that stage? <laughs> Deep from inside of me, I suppose. It's just, uh, it was just an that particular album was an album I felt I had to make, just like every other previous album. Uh, it's a culmination of, you know, your whole life. You know, everything that's influenced you in your life, you know, certain parts of it come out at certain different times, you know. Yeah. And uh, is it something I sat down and thought about before, right, this is going to be influenced by it all. I just felt I had to make this album, and that was it. The songs came. I felt I had to do them. Yeah. Because one thing that I'd noticed from talking to people is that during the 80s, the, the sort of, the, there'd been a real shift in, in sort of a certain scene. Um, we're not talking about the mainstream because you had that Trevor Horn production sound. The, the kind of the alternative scene has sort of been sort of quite excitable. About 87, 88, 87, yeah, you know, the world of ecstasy appeared and certainly everybody was getting very excited about the world of dance and and then sort of wanting, you know, that kind of vibe to, um, to I suppose, to sell records before grunge had appeared. So did you were you sort of aware of those kind of different musical movements that were going on? Uh, not really. Um, that period, I was uh, spending a lot of time in Italy, so. Yeah. And, you know, just uh, with with my own people. Yes. 
There you go. And then as we truck into the 90s and you'd sort of put this world behind you, what what's your what what sort of shaped your sort of 90s? Because obviously you became much more you had a more interest in in sort of people in the states. I just wondered how 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 you were picked up there. Uh it was um just felt that it was a a place we had to go back to and um avail ourselves there, you know. Uh last time we'd been there was um eighty five, early eighty five. So uh yeah, it just had to be done. Um uh I don't know, through some contact, um guy who ended up working with us, uh, but he um he knew some people at Cleopatra Records and uh contacted me and said, Well, you know, they wanted to uh do an album and work with us so yes because actually in, interest enough like i said most bands have a five-year narrative and it's after the second album and there's also because often the, the dynamics of the band aren't going well um and there's also a lack of money but then there's the other thing that often people say is that they they say oh we toured america and then we came back and split up so how did you find touring the states because often it seems to think be the thing that i say 95 percent of people just want to forget music after that uh states of course is a big place um so but we had done that uh in 80 1983 the first tour we just literally played everywhere more or less and um and i think you only need to do that once uh or twice, but then you, you go back and then you you do uh, larger places and uh, fewer cities. Yes. And were, were, were you sort of picking up a bigger audience each time? Um, in 80, well, 83, the New York and L.A. were um, were bigger places, the biggest places we played in the States at that time. Went back uh 85 and it was um we we played the same places uh a uh, couple of other cities um larger than places we played previously in 83 um but as i say you don't need to play uh every bar room and every you know as we kind of done on the first uh you know one place you're playing uh you know 150 capacity place another place you're playing a 3000 capacity place it's you know it just depends. It just depends on uh, where you are, you know, and and uh, the sort of uh, punky, post-punk scene that's in that particular, you know. In the Midwest, you're not going to play a larger place, as you would say, in New York or in Los Angeles. So Yes. So, so. Amazing. It's just the way it is, you know. Because your 90s is incredibly prolific, isn't it? You're You're sort of releasing almost an album every other year if not almost kind of back to back so you're you must have been on an incredibly creative flow at that stage uh yeah that was um late 90s uh to yeah to uh early mid 2000s yeah yes and were you sort of well it's, it's also part of finding outlets you know like an outlet a label you know to, uh, that can put keep putting stuff out Yes. And, you know, that's the other thing that kind of gets people is kind of learning about the world that is kind of publishing and record labels. Obviously, it's probably a bit hit and miss, but did you manage to sort of 
navigate any of that with any slight success or was that a bit of a hit and miss? Different story each time, uh, so far as doing deals or, you know. Um, you know, you learn as you go along. Like, for example, Tony James taught me you don't need to um, sign a publishing deal uh, for perpetuity. You can do a license deal. Um, the same as I've learned for with records, you know, recording rights as well. But I, you know, so I started doing that with my publishing. Uh, signed with a, a UK-based company um, for a period of five years. And then every five years up, renew it again, you know. Yes. Which you must... learn as you go along, you know. Yes, absolutely. And then as the as we went into the millennium, you did a cover of Marianne Faithful Numbers. What was the kind yeah. of what was the moment that you thought I want to do an album of her work or the songs that she'd sung? The opportunity was offered um, to record, you know, someone that I admired, and uh, you know, I, people I knew had done Jack Brell and, you know, friends of mine and, uh, at the time. And uh, yeah, listen, I thought, well, you know, I could do an album of Edith Piaf, but it's, uh, or Marlene Dietrich, but that would be a bit too expected and obvious. Um, I always loved Marion Faithful, but on hearing, I was given uh, a load, a load of uh, material from her, uh, of her work, uh, more than I, more than the material I already knew. Um, but li and also I hadn't listened to it in years. Listened to it again, I would have thought, I can really do something with this. In fact, much more than uh, I would be able to do covering uh, Edith Piaf songs or Dietrich or, you know. So um, I just thought that was a great challenge. And it was there. It was on the table for me. So I did it. Jumped in both feet. And that was really enjoyable to do that. I was working with a good bunch of guys as well. Yes. Because I was always amazed that there was a sort of film that the Rolling Stones had out, which was the one where they were in the circus tent, and she did an amazing song about the whiskey makes you better or something like that. And I always remember that was beautifully delicate, really. I don't know how else to describe it, but I always just was quite captivated with Marion Faithful in that period. Being the I, I think if you know if you're going to cover a, a song, it's a, or a series of songs by an artist, um, you know you. you it, there should be a valid reason for it, and it's like if you can make it your own, um, and if you see something that you can add to it uh, in a different way, then yeah, then it's a valid thing to do. Absolutely. And I, I saw that with that material. I just thought, yeah, yes, it was, it, was a, it was a beautiful challenge, you know. And then you bring out one of the more amazing sort of con um, concepts and albums, which is the Helter Skelter which is this huge box set, which was quite, um, yeah, quite an epic piece. Was that, was that in your mind for quite a while? Um, no, again, it was a company I was working with uh, here in the UK. Um, just gave me carte blanche to do, uh, you know, to do all this stuff. So um, that was a good opportunity for me. Um, Helter Skelter, which is one of them. Yes, absolutely. And I, I must admit, you know, we've... But, you know, this stuff was like, it was all pretty spontaneous, you know. And I like working. It's a different sort of discipline. And it's a different sort of uh, approach. And I, I, but equally it's valid. Uh, and I like that. I like that freedom. It was a different form of freedom. Yes. 
I know, but it's quite um, it's quite interesting. I can't remember who the artist is, but it's an American artist who'd, who'd done various ones on John Wayne Gracie as well. So um, God, I can't remember his name, but um, you, I don't know if you've come across it. But anyway, it's it's all good. So then, taking you up to the sort of current day, what's what's your sort of? I mean, this is a bit of a strange year, but what are you working on at the moment? Um, a new Sergei Shulton album called Oligarch. I'm working also on a, a couple of projects for a couple of albums for my new project, Dada Degar. Um, and of course, with uh, recent events, um, <laughs> it's allowed time to really, an opportunity to just write, write, write. Uh, so that's a positive out of a, a bad crisis situation for everyone. Um, so far as, uh, yes, yeah, far as um, everything else, live concerts uh, we had planned for this year, um, that's, uh, that's on, everything's on hold, you know what I mean? You know, yes. the same story for everyone. We have literally put everything back to next year, haven't we? I mean, the, the uh, one... it seems so. It's just the way it's gone. And do you, um, I mean, the one thing that I've noticed also with a lot of people, they really love to get their material archived and sort of put into some sort of order. And you've done the same with your back catalogue in a lot of ways. Is there anything that still sort of you feel like you would like to still put out or sort of have nicely packaged? Well, um, a couple of years back, um, on my own label, uh, Liberation London, released uh, a complete singles collection, A and B sides, uh, an album called Electric Jezebel. And been wanting to do that for some time. There had been no, there had been quite a few compilations, various of various types um, of the band's catalogue uh, out previously over the last God knows how many years, but. Um, no complete A and B singles. So I did that in uh, 2016, and uh, that was a good thing. Then I, um, working with Cleopatra again, uh, who wanted to put out a, a massive box set, so which which uh, we agreed a deal, and uh, yeah. Um, they released a nine-CD box set, I believe, yeah, nine CDs. My God. So you finding you're getting kind of because of Internet and Spotify and stuff. Do you, are you finding you're getting new audiences all the time and a younger audience who are discovering you and sort of saying, my God, and coming to concerts to sort of. To well, that's that's kind of always been the case. Um, uh, when we did the uh, Song of Legend tour uh, a couple of years back for the first album, just playing the album in, in its entirety. Um, it was kind of more of a, it was kind of a, more of a veteran audience. But um, just previous to that, when we toured Viva Vigilante, the last studio album, uh, like always, it was a mixture of it was young people, middle people, older people, you know. It was, it was a nice, you know, demographic of the, of different ages. Yes. Are you finding you're getting more kind of critical acclaim 
with age than you did possibly when you began? I don't know. Well, I mean, you know, I think there's less politics involved in our music politics. Uh, you know, there was always the politics of the music press back in the day. That was that applied for everyone. And, um, you know, it's, it's you hear the inside stories of how things work. And I just, it just did not interest me at all. I had no respect for it. I just thought, you know, a lot of these people are just absolute bozos, you know. Yes. There are only a few, very few Germans that um, were in it because they actually really loved music, you know. I know. The enemy, it's a bit of a tragic story, really, isn't it? Where they're kind of, um, yes. They're, the enemy. <laughs> no, well, well, I think Sergio and Children were never an enemy band because they they actually literally said to uh, Jonas well, you know, uh, they're totally uh, it's open season on, on Sergio because you know they're a sounds band, they're not an enemy band, you know, mm. because sounds are kind of uh, written about us first and through a guy called Johnny Wallow, I believe. Yeah, and uh, anyway, it's um, it's just stupid politics like that, you know. Well, I realise, because I've done you know, interviews with Lawrence and Felt and Momus and, um, oh, God, I can't remember his name, another band who, you know, they were sort of people who got very, you know, everything they put out would be trashed. So they sort of, you know, being sort of artists and trying to do the best they can, they sort of, yeah, you know, for, you know still decades but, later feel quite sort of... Uh, no, yeah, no, they, they, they shouldn't take notice of such things. They really shouldn't. It's not important, you know. When we're all done and dusted in 200 years' time or 2,000 years' time, you know, the music has a possibility to live on. And no one will remember who these bozos are, you know, uh, wrote, you know, back in the day and uh, to make themselves look whatever at the expense of bands. It's like I used to tell other musicians, don't pay attention. Don't take it personally, you know. It's like just concentrate and feel your music. That's all that matters. Yes, absolutely. And with your current lineup, does this feel like one of the more kind of the? Are you happiest with this than any time in your, in your career? I'm very happy with the current lineup. Absolutely. Um, the lineups over the years, the people that came on board, at any given time for Medea, for Viva Vigilante, they were great. Great lineups. The spirit was there, and it that spirit is imbued on those albums, uh, and that's why they were in the band because they they had this idealistic spirit, and mm. that was the most important criteria, yeah. the most important qualification. Spirit, feel, and just uh, then they will express themselves in a in the way they should. And what would you? What would you say to an eighteen an eighteen year old self that you know if you could have said something to your to yourself back in that very early period that you you've learned over the last x amount of decades? What would that be? You said it again. Oh yeah, what would you say to an eighteen year old your eighteen year old self starting out on this journey? Oh, oh right, you, you you cut off for a sec. You cut out. So <laughs> no, that's... Um, my eighteen year old self. Because uh... you've learned that's a lot, haven't you? Pardon. Okay. Because whatever I could say would possibly not make sense to me at that time, right? Yes. Without the benefit of of one's own experience through things, you know. Sometimes you've got to, you've got to, you know, cross through the mud, you know, crawl through the trenches in order to, you know, 
in order to get bricked by barbed wire, dodge bullets, get wounded every now and again, in order to have that experience and to use it in order for things to make sense. You can't just go back in time and, you know, it's like you tell you everything yourself. Well, you know, because it's not really going to, you know. Um, one thing I would say that all people could say to themselves for the benefit of experience uh, is maybe beware. I mean, in my case, I would say, well, yeah, you know, uh, keep an eye on people. Keep an eye on people in the industry. It's like, don't, don't, um, don't be so trusting of them. You know, like just really, really, really follow your instincts. If something doesn't feel right about a person, then listen to your instincts. But then again, without the, you know, in hindsight, without the hindsight of experience, how could you know, you know? Mm. Yes, this is tricky. It's and never did, going to make that much sense. And just lastly, with that, that sort of situation, did you sort of feel that your initial instinct was correct when you look back with those kind of situations? You mean dealing with, say, dodgy people in the industry? Or... Yeah, well, yes, or, or even, you know, yeah, just various, you know, yeah, I suppose with within that world that you, you know, within the band, within the sort of management, within sort of all the kind of stuff that goes with it, was was, was your initial reaction or feeling, the, did you find that that was the, probably the correct one when you realise what happens next, rather than sort of thinking, well, perhaps I should think about it? Well, my, in, my, my instinct... Uh... I think most people's instincts are never wrong. It's whether it depends just how strongly they feel them or not. Uh, it's whether you act upon the instinct. And, you know, again, it's difficult to, you might have feel an instinct about something or someone, but uh, you, you'll maybe keep giving them chances because uh, you're still trying to find out or you're still feeling your way about how people really are, or, you know, that people can actually be so low as to do something like, you know, rip off other people or, you know, it's just a, you know, you learn it. You learn it through experience and then it makes sense. And with the hindsight of that experience, you, uh, you go forward with, a, you know, another piece of armor on your, on your, carrying on your shoulder and thinking, right, you know, that ain't going to happen again. Yes. And just, and just, okay, just lastly, what, what particular period or album are you most particularly fond of? Um, my own work, you mean? Yeah. Uh, that's really impossible for me to say because, yeah, it's, um, everything was a snapshot of the time and, uh, you know, I've always said you're only as good as what you do next, and and I still believe that. I, I still know that to be true. It's um, you know, once once an album is done, that's it. It's it's out of the system. It's it's out of yourself. It's like you've exercised it. You've exercised those emotions, the feeling, the observations, the the everything that makes an album. It's gone. It, it's done. And then you know you're like an empty vessel again, and you, you know you're taking new things that are gonna they're going to be the snapshot for the next album, you know? Yes. Yes. 
Well, I think that I think Neil Young you was never look back. It's, uh, it's you know, if you look back, it's uh, you're not looking forward. This is true. This is true. And I think Neil Young was the same. I think once the work had been done, he was just interested in moving forward again. So said Neil. It's a tricky one. Yes, I know. And do you feel, I mean, there's obviously one or two casualties along the way that you've worked with. Do you sort of manage to process those experiences and, and relationships all right? You know, knowing that one or two people just didn't, didn't make that kind of world that is rock and roll through, you know, drugs, drink and all that kind of malarkey. Uh, I, not something I really think about to be honest um i think people music for people who make it uh i think people make their music for different reasons um and that's their reasons uh that's that's their you know that's their makeup that's who they are uh mine is mine is mine it's 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 made different to others, I suppose, uh, similar to other people, but, you know, it's, um, it's never been about satisfying oneself, not, not for me. It's, uh, it's been about doing something because it felt it needed to be done. You write an album because you feel it has to be done. It has to be out there, you know, that you want people to listen to it. Without sounding, you know, pious or, I mean, pious high and mighty or, you know, uh, it's um, it's just something you feel you need to share. Yes, which is just probably makes you sleep well at night. (laughs) Well. (laughs) Or something like that. Well, I suppose, <laughs> well, I suppose you know it's it's for the genuine reader, not because you've de- you know it's not like an X factor or somebody who's just thinking, oh my god, you know, I'm a bit you know creatively bankrupt. I'm just going to put something out, you know, just because I've got to get some record sales and and do the ego thing. It's it's kind of for a genuine reason, isn't it? I think it has to be about the music first and foremost. Um, If you're doing it, if you're just worried about record sales and you're worried about, well, um, then you're not really in there with your music. It's, uh, you know. Yes, this is true. I think to make music, you have to have the right intentions, the right motivations. And not one of self-serving or, you know, um, stroke your own fucking ego. It's No, it's about... Music is it's this beautiful language. It's part of the battle for hearts and minds. Yeah. And do, and do you recognise your 18-year-old self, by the way, when you, when you look back to those kind of early records and singles? Can you, does that, that, has that person changed that much? Or Well, I'll try and look back and uh, I'll get back to you on that. <laughs> <laughs> I honestly don't know. It's just something I think about. Yes. You know, life offers up daily you know different experiences and different challenges i know and they come your way or you see them because you are who you are now not because you're relating yourself you know we were different people back then 
uh, with limited experiences. Yes. The beginning of crafting your own world and making your own world. This is true. This is true. But look, Andy, thank you ever so much for this because I've got quite a bit, you know. And and also thank, uh, is it Lara who's kind of yes. organised this, which is amazing. I will. Uh, but thank you ever so much. I've got a lot, and and just really appreciate your time. And um, I hope you're welcome. I hope it's all good. Is it nice and sunny in Greece at the moment? Uh, I'm in London actually, but uh, it's sunny here. Uh, in Greece, uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't oh, know. blind. I've, I'm I'm not there because I'm stranded here for now. You know. Right, but why did I think you were in Greece? Well, uh, I I live there too. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking, oh, because I was doing this time thing, thinking it was, it was in you in Greece and two hours ahead of me, and it must be four o'clock in the afternoon with you, but it's not. Oh, I think it's because she said the internet from Athens isn't always dependable. How strange. Anyway, but you're in London. Where's yes. Laura then? In Athens. Right. <laughs> Good. God, you can see, I'm confused, but I'm now with you. I now realise you're in London and not... I just had this vision that you're in, in yeah, in looking at some beautiful sort of countryside in, in Athens or, you know, some nice place. But no, you're in London, which could be still equally nice. But, um, yeah, it's all good. <laughs> anyway, thank you for that. And um, I'm glad it's managed to get through and, uh, and find a system to work, actually. Otherwise, it would have been tragic yes okay well look have a safe time and i hope you you know we all get through you too with we get through this without too much um, bother but look take care all right and you too david thanks a lot take care bye-bye all the best bye-bye and that dear listener is the end well it's kind of you know obvious really but anyway i like leaving those last bits in because it um, amuses me and that's the main thing anyway look a massive thank you to andy for giving me the time for that interview this, um, yes, they have got a good website, which is um, official sex gang children and uh, lots of information there. And if you go on Facebook, just put Andy um, gang children. I don't know. Yes, don't put sex gang children for <laughs> obvious reasons because um, you get a warning sign, which was a bit freaky. So anyway, look, you'll find more information. Yes, just put in um, Andy sex gang better <laughs> And the yeah, children's children's sex gang. Anyway, look on uh, waffling just to um, yeah, just for a change. Anyway, look a massive thank you to Andy and everybody. Uh, this has been David Eastall, the C eighty six show. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just do C eighty six show. Keep it positive, and if it's not, then don't bother. And also, all these have been archived on Spotify, iTunes, and Podbean. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe. <laughs>